A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news of Putin's visit to China and look at how Russia is using a ghost fleet in the Black Sea to circumvent regulations on maritime transit through the Bosporus in a time of war. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 18th of October, one year and 236 days since the start of the full-scale invasion. I started with the latest from the battlefront. Now, Ukrainian forces used American-supplied ATACMS missiles, ATACMS being the Army Tactical Missile System, for the first time yesterday in those strikes on Berdyansk and Luhansk air bases. We discussed it yesterday, suspected it was ATACMS, but couldn't verify at the time. And obviously, we always were very clear about the stuff that we don't know, just about as much as we do with the things that we are sure of. But after we um, after we spoke yesterday, Ukraine's special ops forces confirmed the reports that we had that we'd been looking at yesterday that nine helicopters an ammunition depot a surface air missile launcher and at least one of the runways in Berdyansk were destroyed or damaged they say dozens of russian military personnel were also killed or wounded in the attack which they had codenamed operation dragonfly now president zelensky confirmed in his nightly address last night that kiev had used attackums he said my special gratitude today goes to the U.S. Uh, sorry, goes to the U.S. Our agreements with President Biden are working, and precisely so. Attackums have proven themselves. Then various Russian sources yesterday also showed images, reportedly of Attackum submunitions found at the site of the strike in Berdyansk. It's thought Ukraine used the M48 variant. There are two variants basically of Attackums: the M48. Uh, has cluster munitions range of about 100 miles. The other one, the M, I think 57, is it? I think it's the M57 can go. Yeah, M57 goes about 200 miles. So they 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 have the shorter version, the cluster munition. The longer one also has a single, what's called a single unitary warhead, which is just a massive bag of bang. But they use the, I mean, still a long range, 100 miles, and it was they thought it was the cluster munitions that did for the helicopters yesterday. As I said, they were using Russia was using dispersal as a, a means of protection so they didn't have been hardened aircraft shelters but they were spread out so if you have a a single explosive warhead it's going to do 
a lot of damage to anything near it when it lands but it's you know cluster munitions that spread out over a, a slightly larger area uh, and is good for something like an airfield now then Kiev has been pushing washington for more than a year uh, to get hold of the missiles they say it's vital for them to hit supply lines air bases rail networks in the russian occupied uh, parts of ukraine and they're currently outside the range of the shorter munitions we think president biden eventually agreed to send attackums in september when president zelensky visited the white house and yeah as i say we're pretty certain it was the m39 variant sorry the getting confused here but not the longer m57 variant and we don't know if they have been sent elsewhere shelling has continued across ukraine including in kharkiv within the last two hours i was looking at reports there down in zaporizhia civilians were killed and injured when apartment blocks were hit to the northeast of the country there were marginal shifts in the lines um, in the area we were speaking about in the last couple of days Russian offensive activity on the Kupiansk to Liman axis in the last two weeks continues. We know they've been pushing hard up there. Russian shelling has intensified and elements of Russia's 6th and 25th combined arms army, 25th being a, a brand new formation, uh, plus the 1st Guards tank army have been conducting attacks but with limited success. That came from uh, Britain's MOD today. They say Ukrainian forces retain a significant defensive presence on this axis so up in the northeast and it's highly unlikely russian forces will achieve a major operational breakthrough and then just finally for me rybar which is one of the least unreliable russian war blogger groups uh, says that elements from ukraine's 35th and 36th marine brigades have captured the settlement of poimo and are fighting for Pishkinivka. This is on the left bank of the Dnipro River, down in Herzon Oblast. They're using um, artillery, drone strikes, the FPV drones, first-person view drones. So we're currently about, we're talking here about 10 k's due east of Herzon to over the river, but due east of Herzon. Unconfirmed reports I've seen today suggest that those Marines, plus other recce elements, had been massing on the right bank, so the Ukrainian-held bank, in recent days in the vicinity, in the vicinity of Pribnivovsky. And then they pushed over the river uh, on Monday night across the, an area where there was a, a destroyed rail bridge. You can find it on, um, have a look on Google Maps, you'll find the destroyed rail bridge. That's the area they seem to have pushed across. There's no indication at present that whatever has happened is anything more than a raid. There has been occasional forays across that river. We've We've reported on them. But uh, nothing has ever developed into a into a sort of a firmer foothold on the on that left bank on the Russian held bank of the Dnipro at the moment. France has been quite a few movements in the diplomatic arena in the last twenty four hours. Who's been to see his old friend? Ha, yes, well, thanks, Don. Putin's significant trip to China, which I first touched on yesterday, definitely, as you say, warrants a bit of an extended look into Russia's allies. There have been quite a few announcements pertaining to them in the past 24 hours, despite so much attention, of course, on events evolving in the Middle East. Now, following our broadcast yesterday, we understand Putin met his old friend, as you say, Mr. Xi, at Beijing's Great Hall of the People on the sidelines of the major forum hosted by China, which featured that 130 delegates from countries involved in the Belt and Road Initiative. And she hailed the relationship between Russia and China, saying, and I quote, the political mutual trust between the two countries is continuously deepening. 
He then went on and hailed the close and effective strategic coordination between the two parties, noting that he'd met with Putin 42 times in the past 10 years and we have developed a good working relationship and a deep friendship. And just speaking to that, it is worth remembering that when she visited Moscow earlier this year in that show of solidarity to Putin, there were a lot of warm remarks made of a similar ilk then, which I think speaks to this. Putin did comment on the attackers' delivery and apparent usage. He said that the US deliveries of those long-range missiles you were just talking about to Ukraine was a mistake and that the supplies would create additional threats to Russian forces but wouldn't significantly change the situation at the front. Now, that is, of course, the opposite view of what many military figures looking into this closely are saying this morning. But then one could hardly expect Putin to say anything else, given the circumstances. Perhaps most notably, while speaking at a televised news conference in Beijing, Putin said that he welcomed what he saw as less hawkish Western positioning on Ukraine and agreed with statements about the need to solve the conflict via talks. He didn't go into details and it is a contestable proposition given the announcements from the US and the European Parliament this week. After all, only yesterday the EU backed giving an extra 50 billion euros in European Union money over the next four years to help Ukraine rebuild. That proposal, advanced by the European Commission back in June, will see a mix of grants and loans go to Ukraine as a line in the bloc's long-term 2024-2027 budget. It was adopted by 512 MEPs with 45 voting against and 63 abstaining. So there was no doubt that this was going to pass. And the result means that negotiations can now start with EU member states on the final details of the Ukraine facility, which would go some way to help Ukraine plug gaps in its finances. So that's the EU. And then you've got, of course, those notable contributions, which John Lloyd spoke about a few days ago. I think it was $200 million further going to Ukraine. And so this idea that the West is is sort of losing attention, I think is being over-egged, frankly. And yet it is true that some less hawkish voices have increasingly been in the limelight, especially in the United States, but also in Europe. Another significant development at the summit was the surprise appearance of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Some European and NATO allies were understandably furious at this, saying that Hungary is taking all of the advantages of being a member of the EU and NATO whilst working effectively to undermine both. Orban has, of course, slowed Sweden's accession to NATO and has refused to fully support Ukraine since the get-go. And in terms of what we've seen of him at this summit, he's been shaking hands with Putin and all of the senior delegates there, really milking it, which, of course, Putin has also been very keen to stress to try and show, and this, I think, is the crucial element here, to try and show that it is not as if it is as simple as Putin versus the West. He's trying to show China and others that there are Western powers who are willing to vocally and politically support Putin at this moment. 
Now, the problem for NATO and the EU is on the subject of the leverage that it has over a country like Hungary. Realistically, it's not going to try booting them out or anything of that nature, which would risk, of course, them even more deeply ingratiating themselves into the Russian orbit. But neither is it clear what it can really do to reduce this kind of activity. It's, of course, proven a similar problem, not so much recently, but in the in recent decades over Turkey. And its role, which, of course, has sometimes been seen as undermining some of the central tenets of NATO. So it's a very interesting problem, this. But it's not only been the Hungarian Prime Minister who's been speaking to Putin. There have been others as well, Dom. There have indeed. And um, Putin's not the only senior Russian official out on his travels. Who's, uh, who, who also have we spotted on the world stage? Yes, well, Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, of course, has now arrived in North Korea for meetings, seen as setting the stage for that visit by Putin, which was promised to us after that visit by Kim Jong-un to Russia last month. Listeners will recall that Putin was invited to Pyongyang to discuss further military cooperation, and it seems that is going ahead, hence why Lavrov has landed in North Korea. Putin will be very pleased, too, that his Vietnamese counterparts has extended his hand after they've been meeting at the summit with Vietnam's president, Vauvan Phuong, inviting Putin to visit the country soon, which Putin has said to have happily accepted. Vietnam, Vietnam of course, remains one of Russia's closest partners in Asia, ties that were developed during the Soviet era, and Hanoi is a major buyer of Russian weapons. We've received emails from several listeners living or visiting Vietnam, struck by the recent influx of Russians to the country since the war in Ukraine began, apparently less inclined to visit certain other countries since the war started. And I'll come back to that in my final thought later. But lastly, two other updates, if I may, Don, relating to Russia domestically. A law to revoke Russia's ratification of the Global Nuclear Test Ban Treaty completed its passage through the lower house of Russia's parliament today. The vote was 415 in favour, with no abstentions or votes against. I think designed to tell its own story, that. Putin urged the parliament to make the change in order to mirror the position of the United States, which has signed but never ratified the 1996 uh, Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. That treaty, which prohibits tests involving nuclear explosions, has made such tests taboo. Only North Korea has carried out a test this century. But of course, this claim that it's being designed to mirror the US, I think, is... Well, very misleading. At the end of the day, there have been nuclear treaties that have been signed for a very, very extensive period of time. The New START Treaty, of course, most notably with Russia withdrew from as part of it throwing its toys out of the pram over the Western responses on the matter of Ukraine. So really, I think trying to justify it as being something that is in parallel with what the US is doing is frankly absurd. They have said they won't resume testing unless Washington does, but arms control experts are concerned it may be inching towards a test of some kind, perhaps in extremis as the means of deterring further Western interventions in Ukraine if things suddenly took a drastic turn for the worst. This would be laying the groundwork for that. More likely, though, it is designed to send 
a signal internationally and domestically that Russia is willing and capable to use such weapons, as well as taking the usual swipe at the US. Although it should be added there that there are major question marks as to whether it would be actually capable of using these weapons. But it's not Going all Russia's way, I just want to end, it would appear that Ukraine's efforts to sort alternative routes for its produce following Moscow's withdrawal from the grain deal is bearing fruit. Ukraine shipped 10.5 million metric tonnes of grains through the Romanian Black Sea port of Constanta in the first nine months of this year, data has revealed today. And, of course, this is a major issue for them. And that data, which doesn't include volumes handled through smaller Romanian Danube ports such as Galati, which is also, we understand, seen a huge uptick in produce from Ukraine. Uh, it's shown that 9.2 million tonnes of Ukrainian grain left port in the first eight months. And overall, that the port shipped 25.1 million tonnes of grains in January, September, its previous annual record high. So it just speaks to quite how fast this uptick has been in recent months that has already surpassed everything that went through it last year and of course we're only entering October and things have only been of course awry with the grain deal for a certain few months of this year it's not been since January so there has been a lot of work that's being done but there's still a long way to go of course but that's where we are Dom in what is as I say a very fast moving political realm. Certainly is. Thanks, Francis. Delighted now to uh, to introduce Jack Crawford, research analyst from Roos's Open Source Intelligence and Analysis Group, co-author of a new paper out today examining how a shadowy Russian fleet has been circumventing regulations on maritime transit through the Bosporus since the start of the full-scale invasion. Jack, welcome, welcome, welcome to the pod. Your report, Ghost Ship, Russia's Secret Naval Fleet, provides evidence that a Russian ship called Sparta 4, which is a general cargo vessel, is being used as a military ship and has transported military equipment as part of Russia's war effort. Welcome to the pod. As the name of your group suggests, the information you use is open source, available to anyone. But first and foremost, can I ask you to introduce your work and tell us a bit about how you go about how you go about producing a report like this? How long have you been looking at this particular issue? Jack, welcome. Hi, Dom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm with Rusi's Open Source Intelligence and Analysis Research Group. Um, I specialize in transatlantic security and defense issues, the intersection of all of those with open source intelligence research. So Rusi's been engaging in open source research for a couple years now on a range of security and defense issues. More recently, lots of reports and papers on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Essentially, we collect and analyze information and data from a wide variety of publicly available sources. So that could include satellite imagery, social media, trade data, etc. And then aggregating and putting all of that information together to kind of identify bigger trends or really see the bigger picture in whatever we're investigating. So specifically regarding this part of four, we've been watching it and its wider fleet for at least the last six months, if not a bit longer. We've written some smaller pieces here and there on this story at RUSI, uh, but we're really, really excited to have this research out and in full with the NATO Defense College. Brilliant. Well, I mean, it was a, it was very accessible, I have to say, delightedly so. Only what eleven pages ish, so even I could, even I could get my head around it. And you, you talk about the network behind the Sparta Four and her sister vessels. You say she's owned by a company called Oberon Logistics. 
that is in itself owned by the Russian MOD and has subsidiary companies connected to Russia's Deputy Minister of Defence. And those companies directly operate Sparta 4 and the other vessels. How hard was it to uncover those links? How, how certain are you that the Defence Minister is, is specifically and intimately involved in this endeavour? Yeah. So like I mentioned, all of the information that we use is available out in the open sources. So, for example, we use Russian language news media and corporate registry documents to, re- to identify that Iran Logistics is owned by the Russian Ministry of Defense. And even some claims that it was founded explicitly to optimize cargo logistics and transportation for affiliated enterprises. And then oftentimes, lots of these companies are proud of these connections. So Oberon Logistics' own website reports a history of successful partnerships with entities like this, the MOD, uh, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, several state-affiliated defense conglomerates, and then, you know, of course, a couple of large civil commercial organizations as well, um, because a lot of these vessels allegedly are civilian cargo ships. Yeah, so just walk us through this now. So can you explain for us, please, what the Montreux Convention is and how it applies and when it applies to such vessels such as Sparta 4? Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's that's one of the questions of the day. So essentially, the, the convention was signed in the 1930s to help determine more explicitly how the straits in and around Turkey and the Black Sea separating the Mediterranean would be regulated. I think the most important thing to mention here is that the convention essentially gives Turkey the power to close these straits to military and what they call auxiliary vessels, not already stationed in the Black Sea. And a few weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022, the Turkish government made this decision, essentially closing um, the transit of the Turkish Straits to all military and military-adjacent vessels not already explicitly stationed in the Black Sea. So in theory, then, auxiliary vessels, which is what we think the Sparta IV and its, its fleet are, are ships that help facilitate the transport of troops or military goods. Except in what's, what's curious in this case is that the Sparta IV has still continued to transit the strait because allegedly it, you know, it's, it's sailing under the guise of being this civilian vessel. Yes, well, OK, so that takes on to, is Russia doing anything illegal here? And does this action, in legal terms, mean that the civilian crew, if they are civilian crew, not Russian regular Navy personnel, are they not directly participating in hostilities and therefore a legitimate military target for Ukraine? And, and what, what do you think the Sparta Four has been carrying? Yeah, well, so I think what's important to underline, again, just to reiterate, that even though the Sparta Four and its sister, sister vessels are technically on paper identified as, as civilian ships, more and more reporting from Russia, but also from other sources as suggesting they're moving military goods. So we've identified in our report potential military items. A couple of other reports released recently also identify these goods as as well. So it's clear that at least according to satellite imagery, um, it doesn't appear to just be transporting commercial goods. What's also important to note is that in its voyages to and from, so so in the report we talk about it, 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 it sails between a Russian port in the Black Sea and then the port of Tartus in Syria. In both of these instances, it's only ever berthing at Russian naval military bases, even though it's allegedly a civilian commercial vessel. So that's a massive indicator in and of itself. I won't speak to specifics on military targets, but I do think it's, it's important and worth noting that some of these vessels have already had near misses with Ukrainian maritime firepower. So I think Ukraine is certainly, and I would say understandably, keen to inhibit these voyages. Back in August, for example, regarding this part of the war, the UK Ministry of Defense reported that 
the vessel's likely military escort was nearly attacked and then the attack was was eventually foiled. So I think there's already lots of attention for, from a security perspective on how to stop these ships. Yeah, no, I, I know uh, Francis has got a question for you, but just before I hand, hand over, your report talks about how this vessel, and I presume the others as well, are turning off their automatic ID system, the AIS, Automatic Identification System, the trackers. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, why it's so dangerous, but also the the areas or the times when the circumstances where ships are allowed to turn off their AIS, if there's any mitigation here at all, or if that if that in itself is is pretty much a slam dunk, they're up to they're up to no good. Well, to say the least, and, and to be understated about it, it's certainly always frowned upon. Occasionally, you'll see it when vessels are in port and its crew are ashore, um, when vessels are sailing through areas that are low traffic but have a high risk of piracy or warfare. So obviously, the Black Sea comes to mind these days. And then obviously, if a ship experiences a legitimate issue with its AIS transmissions from a, a technical error or what have you, it'll also happen then. But technically, legally, the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea prohibits the turning off of AIS tracking. And this is something that I think is becoming a more salient issue. Insurance providers, for example, are now including clauses that if AIS is turned off intentionally for long periods on vessels, these providers are starting to invalidate insurance for the vessels that are behaving in that in that behavior. So it, it's certainly a massive, massive problem. And it's also worth noting that the Sparta 4 hasn't been transmitting it on its AIS for several, several weeks now. And that's a pattern that we we usually see with vessels that are engaged in illicit behavior, but obviously with this fleet, it's all the more salient for the invasion of Ukraine. Thanks very much for that, Jack. This is Francis speaking. I just wanted to ask, I imagine as part of your fascinating research on this subject, you've inevitably widened your remit, as it were, into the state of the Russian Navy, particularly in the Black Sea more broadly. I just wondered whether you had any reflections on its health, as it were, and also generally on the Russian strategy as it's evolved over the past 18, 19 months. Sure, yeah. I think that's also the question of of the day. And there are researchers at RUSI who who focus more on naval and maritime power and logistics. What I can speak to is, is specifically regarding this evasion of international law, or at least undermining the spirit of international law. I think this is par for the course for Russia, and that's on land, at sea, um, across the board. So I think this is a behavior that we've we've seen, we've identified it now in 2023, but these vessels have been engaging in, in this kind of illicit activity for several years now, uh, even in other cases dating back to before Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. So I think this is a tried and true method, especially because there's such little international attention or little international, so few international ramifications for doing this kind of thing. Sure. Well, there's there's no um, there's no drop off in attention from us here, Jack. Thank you so much for that. It's a um, it's a really interesting report. It's it's openly accessible. I, mean, I guess it'd be daft to be the the group you are and then stick it behind a paywall or something. But it's on your website. Folks can go and find it in Rusi. Okay, let's start uh, start wrapping up. Now we'll go to, go to final thoughts. I'll go first. Invite Jack as our guest to uh, to close the episode. I just want to say that I so we filmed to, uh, this week's defense in depth film this morning. Comes out tomorrow. And I was talking about the impact of the, the current crisis in Israel on the war in Ukraine. And the most obvious, the most obvious expression of that is, is distraction, the world attention being potentially distracted. Although Lloyd Austin said it wouldn't make any difference last week. He said he got to, we're able to look in two places at once. But I think today's what we've talked about today, especially with Jack, shows that even if they're 
if we are able to keep our eye on, on two balls at once, it is going to be easier for Russia to get up to the kind of activities that Jack described and, and these, these sort of shadowy fleets doing uh, whatever they're up to. So it, Jack's work shows the power of open source intelligence, OSINT, but as we've seen in the last day, over the controversy about this blast in Gaza just shows how wrong open source comment can be or how, how they are, how it can very quickly be revised. So it's just a salutary lesson, I think, about the power of social media and open source intelligence. But please just verify as much as you can, where you can before, before leaping to any conclusions. Because if you look at Jack's report, then that will show you the kind of level of detail that we should all be going into before we, we come to any strident opinions. And the events over the last 24 hours just shown how, how problematic it can be on so many levels if, if we just sort of, you know, willy-nilly grab, grab whatever we can. But um, anyway, there'll be more of that kind of stuff in the, um, in the film that comes out tomorrow. Francis, final thoughts, please. Thanks. Yes, well, a bit of a different one today. But I mentioned earlier that several listeners have reached out in Vietnam saying that they've noted an uptick in the number of Russian visitors there in recent months. And we've had similar messages from other listeners in Asia. So I thought I would share some of their reflections, to which, of course, we're very grateful. So one writes, I was traveling around Oceania and Asia earlier in the year and wanted to submit a quick observation on the number of Russian tourists I come across on a daily basis, particularly in Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia. Their presence is substantial, even potentially superseding all other nationalities. They can still travel and holiday in spite of the many sanctions. From what I can see, those with any money, and I imagine any influence, are still getting away to far-flung destinations. Now, another listener, Nick, in Thailand, adds to this. I'm an expat who has lived and worked in Thailand for many years now. Thais in general are not following the conflict closely. We're a long distance away. Their knowledge of European geography is mixed and the local political struggles here dominate the online discourse. My personal read on this cultural artefact is that when you live in a country where power cuts are common, the buses don't show up, the army steal those elections and the roads routinely flood in the summer, you have to internalise a relaxed, indifferent attitude to all manner of things or your baseline stress level is going to be unmanageable. That said, there is a relatively smaller group of younger, wealthier Thais who are very politically engaged and Western orientated, owing to the democratic struggles here. This group are indeed very aware of what's happening and are sympathetic to the Ukrainians. It comes up on Thai Twitter regularly where this cohort talk. The war has also had a big impact on the Russian expats here. About a year ago, when the first Russian mobilisation happened, there was seemingly a big rush to secure visas. Obtaining a visa to stay in Thailand isn't straightforward unless you're married to a local of retirement age or have a non-trivial chunk of change to grease the palms of the local immigration officers. Hence, if you're Russian and of the age to be called up, your best shot is to get a student visa, usually by enrolling in a language school. This route is notorious among expats as being an easy two years visa because most of the schools couldn't care less if you attend class or not, so long as their fees are promptly paid. They provide the papers, then you can do your own thing for a couple of years without immigration breathing down your neck. Consequently, for a period of three or four months, the language schools in Bangkok were hugely oversubscribed with new Russian students. I assume this was the case in other big population centres too. 
My wife has talked to some of her Russian classmates, those who actually attend, about this conflict. This is easier for her than for me because she's not a Westerner. Of the three she's talked to, all were very reticent to dwell on the subject. Their feelings appear to be a mix of embarrassment, concern for the future and weariness with the effect on them individually. Local banks here aren't letting them open accounts. Their credit cards don't work. They all complain about access to money. Despite that, none of them want to go back home for fear of a draft or otherwise getting stuck. When you compare the white sands and palm trees of Bangshan Beach to a wet, murderous trench, it's not hard to see why. So thank you for both of those listeners who reached out to us and to everybody who offers their insights on these questions we discuss. We really do read them and we bank them for days like today when it becomes relevant to the subjects that we cover. Lovely. Thanks, Francis. We certainly do. I echo that. Jack, as our guest for today, would you like the final thought? Sure. And thanks, thanks again for having me, Dom. And thanks for your, your cautionary comments on rigor when engaging with open source materials. I don't know that I could have said it better myself. If anyone's interested in more detail on this story or any similar research, you can find the paper on the Native Defense College's website. And then you're also always encouraged and welcome to check out the Open Source Intelligence Group's webpage at RUSI to see our other work. Regarding the story of the Sparta 4 and its ghost fleet, the international community is now aware of what's going on. I think that's very clear. So now it's time to act by denouncing this behavior and supporting international diplomatic efforts to address yet another case of Russia's blatant disregard for international law. On our recent visit to the United States, I visited the Providence Day High School in Charlotte, North Carolina. They run a Global Studies Diploma. I sat down with a group of students to discuss the conflict in Ukraine, how they're going to inherit the world, and what they thought about issues that are going to affect them in the future. So we're here in Charlotte, North Carolina, at the Providence Day High School. I'm delighted to be joined by a number of staff members here, and and more importantly, six of the students. So welcome, everybody. And I'm really keen to hear from the next generation. So we talk a lot on this pod about big, serious international staff, but actually, of course, it's, it's you guys that are going to have to take forward a lot of these ideas or stop them and inherit the mess we've made or build on the, the, the ideas and dreams that have already been put in place. So as I understand it, most of you are on the Global Studies Diploma here at Providence Day. So you've been looking at the international arena and the structures and formations and the history about how we've come here. So I'd be really interested in your thoughts on if you think they are fit for purpose, if the structures from the basically the post-Second World War settlement, if they make sense today to you guys as you look at the world. But welcome. Thanks for talking to The Telegraph. Really, really keen to hear your views. And if I could just start by asking, how do you feel about the future, the international system and the world that you're going to, uh, you're going to inherit? Well, I would say that sometimes it feels really challenging to feel positive about the future amidst a lot of conflicts and whatnot in the world and, you know, climate change. And there are a lot of challenges that are being thrust upon our generation. But while I don't feel necessarily positive for the future, I do feel empowered to create a future that I feel more positive about and that I am excited for. So that lack of positivity is really good motivation to work really hard to change the world for the better. Okay, that, I mean, that's, an, that's an interesting point. So just really clunky, but she'll show her hands. Who feels positive about the future here out of the six? One, two, three, four, five. That's good. That's good. Um, empowered. Who feels empowered? That's great. All of you. Terrific. So who wants to talk me through about 
why you feel empowered? What does empowerment mean for you? I feel like every day that you're able to make a difference, like in your school or in your community, it reminds you how much your voice matters. And it really makes you feel motivated for the future, even though it might not always look super positive or make you feel really great. It really makes you want to make a difference and it shows you that you can make a difference if you just put your voice out there and you, you know, do something about the things that you care about. Well, first, thanks for having us here. But I'm absolutely empowered for the future. I think there's so many young people who are shifting from Euro-centricism to caring more about the world, to wanting to know what's going on in Ukraine, what's happening in Morocco right now, and all over the world. And I think with people having that knowledge and seeking out those resources, such as your podcast and the Global Studies Diploma like we have here, there's absolutely potential and reason to believe that the future will be better than today. And do you need a role model? Do you look at, at figures who are trailblazing? Do you look at Greta Thunberg as a trailblazer? Do you, do you need somebody like that? Or are you, you you're confident and capable in your own mind to, to forge your way? So I think trailblazers and role models are really important people to have, but I also don't think they're necessary. I have full faith in the power of our generation, in our minds, in our desires and our ability to make change in the world, whether that's on a small scale or whether that's as we grow up getting into elected office, making change in whatever form that may take. So I don't necessarily think we need a role model because we have been educated, we've been provided the facts, and with that we're able to make our own opinions. And a role model, although helpful, is also unnecessary when we are given the foundations of what we need to know and the ways that we can make change. And forgive me, can anyone just give me the bare bones of what the Global Studies Diploma is and the various aspects to it and what you've been looking at? So I'm actually one of the chairs of the student leadership team for the Global Studies Diploma. And so this is both a curricular and co-curricular program that is an additional high school diploma to the one that we earn here at Providence Day. And for the program, you take a set of classes that are specific to the diploma, like global civics, world history, AP U.S. history, or regular U.S. history. And then there are a whole bunch of electives that we can choose from. So, for example, I've taken global studies genocide, global studies Middle East, North Africa. I took global literature, women's voices. So there's a whole array of classes to choose from. And then outside of classes, we create portfolios. So each of us has a website, and there's a point system that we have to follow throughout our four years of high school. And there are different competencies that we work to fulfill. So we find opportunities like listening to podcasts or reading articles, attending speaker events or cultural celebrations in our communities um, to fill competencies like explore multiple perspectives, with sustainably, solve problems, take action. And there are seven in total. And we work for our whole time in the program to complete that. And then senior year, we take a capstone class called Global Leadership, where we write essentially like a senior thesis about an issue of our choosing. So yeah, it's a really cool program. And sorry, what was AP US History? AP US History is a course that a lot of people take as juniors here. What's it stand for? Oh, it's advanced placement. It's essentially a college level class. So the highest level class offered here are the AP classes. And do you guys feel that you get the framework through which you can critically evaluate the world and receive information, or just feel bombarded by 24-hour news and social media and rubbish and people just 
talk it off? What, I mean, do you feel able to critically evaluate the information that's thrown at you? One thing I really enjoy about the Global Studies program is they teach you about things from all over that are so impactful, but you might have never even heard of it. So it gives you the framework to not just do something with that information, but to be curious and to want to know more. And for me, like sometimes it can feel like a lot, but it can feel like there's so much more I can learn. There's so much more out there. If there's this, what else is there for me to know? And how can I make a difference with that information? I think speaking also in a broader sense about the world and news as a whole, I think there is a lot of news, obviously, and a lot of it is bad. But I think by forcing yourself to seek out the positive in any story or in the world as a whole, I think that's really important because one, it teaches you to think critically about what's really going on. And it also forces you to be a little bit more optimistic, which I think our generation as a whole could use just because we are constantly bombarded with the bad news. So trying to seek out that good news makes it feel a little less overwhelming and just helps us develop as humans as a whole. Yeah, and just to add to that point, I think that it's key to look for good news as well as bad news. But when even when we're looking at what we perceive to be bad news, it's important to look for what is the action that we need to take because of this. And if you alter your perspective to be seeking that kind of motivation, I think it's much easier to deal with the bad news because it is a form of empowerment instead of just absolutely dragging you down. Adding on to that point a little bit as well, I think one of the most empowering things to see in the news is what young people are doing. And that's sort of an inspiration to all of us here. So, you know, that in Ukraine, you have children who are our age, 17 and 18, who are out fighting for their country and defending their freedom. Um, I think that's definitely an inspiration to us all that we see across the globe as well. Like they said, I think one of the greatest threats to our generation is actually fake and political news. And I think through programs like Global Studies and having conversations with people like you, people who've been in the field, know what they're talking about and have traveled the world. I think we gain a sense of perspective about what's actually going on, what are the problems the world is facing. And we also gain agency as to how we can solve these problems and steps, what needs to happen next and the discussions we need to have. Do you feel like you, you need a kind of armour to protect yourself from the constant bombardment of news and social media and the 24-hour cycle, but also because there are some people out there, some organisations that just want to you know, manipulate us all and shape the way we, we see the world, but just the sheer deluge, the sheer sort of weight of, of information can be overloaded? I don't think we necessarily need an armour because I think at PD and especially with the Global Studies Department, Diploma. I think they prepare us very well to be able to spot and ignore fake media and false media. So yeah, I think especially this group of students are pretty prepared. From my perspective, more than needing armor, I think we need a sword, especially on a broader perspective outside of PD and outside of our department. I think being able to filter through fake news and know what's real is one of the most important skills that we all young people should be able to attain. I think that gives us an insight on what's happening in the world, what we should care about. And based on those things, we are able to shape our beliefs and elect people we deem are taking action against these problems. I thought it was interesting earlier on when we were talking about empowerment. So does anyone here, do you feel as if the systems that are in place today will enable you to do the 
to have the sword, as you say, a shear, and actually go and do something? Or, or does the idea of elected office, for example, just seem so distant? It's just like, how do you start that? How do you even think about getting on that way? Or are there many, many other ways of taking action? I think one of the biggest misconceptions, and obviously this is coming from a high schooler who does not hold elected office, is that elected office is hard, hopefully yet, (laughs) is that elected office is hard to attain when you have so many local government offices, you have state level offices. And even though we put the federal government on a sort of pedestal, I think that local government is honestly where government and governance really starts, because that's where you can truly make a difference, whether that's talking at a city council meeting or whether that's running for elected office. We, One of our students' parents is actually one of the city councilmen. And overall, local government shapes our daily lives. And even if it doesn't have as much of an impact on the international community, it has an impact on your local community. And that's just as important. So I think we really need to get out of the mindset that it's hard to make a difference because the federal government is so unattainable when we have so many opportunities right here in our city. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Anish. And I think that local government is so important because if we shape our own communities into what we want them to be, enough of those communities get shaped. And then we have a broader collection of communities that reflect our values and what issues are important to us. And eventually you accumulate enough of that and it makes a large scale difference. So what feels like really small actions to us are really the most key to creating sustainable and long-term change. It's interesting. It's like, who can impact your life the most, the chief secretary to the treasury or the person that empties your your trash? I mean, which one's going to make you absolutely boil with rage every morning if it goes wrong? But so, Anish, your point about local can sometimes be much more impactful on society. And that starts right here, I guess. I mean, is there a, do you have a student government or um, something like that? Am I getting the terms correctly? Is anyone, is anyone sitting on this? Ah, yes. Uh, so we do have a student government association here. So in grades nine through 12, each grade elects five class officers who represent their grade level and plan sort of grade level events. And then there's also an executive committee, which I'm serving on this year selected by the entire upper school, and that sort of oversees the broader school community. So there are subcommittees like community engagement in which we sort of seek to reach out and connect our community, both with the broader Charlotte community and within our school campus here. And then, so that is elected by the whole upper school, and we work on issues that affect the entire school more broadly as well. And are you drunk with power yet? That will come. So, just moving on for just for the next few minutes, if we may, just how do you feel about the international landscape at the moment? I mean, Shia, you, you mentioned Morocco earlier on, but do you feel a connection to global events? Do you feel as if you're being swept along on the tide, or you're part of something? You're able to shape something. What do you feel about the the bigger picture? I feel like one benefit that our generation has is social media and the internet. And you're able to feel more connected to those global experiences because you're able to see that those are people just like you. You don't just see it on the news. You don't just hear about it just from other people. You get to see what those people look like. They look like your family. They look like your friends. And I feel like that's what makes you want to make a difference because these are people. And whenever you hear about those issues that may weigh heavy on you, they remind you that you can do something about it because... Of your humanity. I think along with what she said and what you said, instead of being swept by the tide, we're riding the wave. 
this summer I was in Lublin, Poland, speaking with Ukrainian university students. And like she said, I think this generation understands the importance of the human condition and the human perspective rather than just hearing stats on the news about oil rigs being taken over or the death count. I met some students in Ukraine whose parents had died fighting, who they didn't know where their parents were, they didn't know where their siblings were, they didn't know what they were going to do. And I think that underscored the whole situation at a completely different level with me rather than just seeing things on the news or just seeing bodies. And I think that's what makes all these events around the world connect back home and connect to yourself. I was just going to say, my my name is Tasha Ariola, and so Working with these students every day, I'm inspired. But one of the things that I think our program does is that there are also skills that we try to develop in these students so that they become global citizens, like empathy, which you're hearing right now, great communication skills, information literacy that for them to be able to understand those things, to think critically and really take multiple perspectives. So our students have started that since they were in TK, if they've been here that young. And this curriculum has really looped up as they've grown and And you can really hear some of those things come out in in the conversations that they're having with each other, not just in forums like these, but in lunch conversations, in their classes, in their community when they're doing community engagement projects. And so it's really remarkable to see something that is on a poster for our passport that we have up. But to see it lived out every day with our students, for me, is really remarkable and really inspires me. You're the program director, is that correct? Yes, I'm the coordinator of the Global Studies Diploma Program, and I teach the the senior class. I teach the Global Leadership class. And every year I'm really impressed and astonished by the compassion and and understanding and critical thinking that our students have to think about these issues and to then, you heard about the agency as well. They want to do something about it, and they're determined to do something about it. When you're planning next year's course, how much have you, uh, uh, I mean, you've obviously got a, got a plan, but how much are you then taking feedback from the year that's gone before from the students and, and adjusting? So much. So we do this every year. We have an exit interview where they talk to us about how their experience has been and what are some things that they would change. They've just been through a four-year program, and we really do implement things that they suggest before they were doing their exit interviews in another language, which was because they need to take the same language for years. And that became a little bit overwhelming. Right now, they're not doing that, but they still reach to the highest level of proficiency when it comes to language. But as far as like classes that they're interested in, different activities that they'd like us to do, more emphasis on what they want in the global leadership class for that next year, that's something I'm actually changing, you know, some of the things that we're going to be doing based on feedback we got from our seniors that are now in university. Great. Now, being completely selfish for a moment, if I may. So what do you want from the media? How could I better serve you? I think making it more approachable or as approachable as possible. Sometimes as a kid, it feels like it's not in your control or it's something that's beyond you. But I feel like one thing that has been really good in recent years is that media has become in a way where not only can we access it, but we want to. And we want to hear what's going on in the world because it's in a form that we can understand and that we can use to make a difference. When you say the, the form, what do you mean? Is there a lot of assumed knowledge in the, the media and you don't know what we're talking about? Or is it just a boring format? Or what, what would you want to change? I think it's both. I think sometimes 
it can be very high level, very like academic in a way where it's only approachable to a small group of kids, if any. And I feel like the way in which the format of it and the language that's used is very important if your goal is to reach like young people because you don't want them to feel like it's too much because that's when it can feel overwhelming, if that makes sense. Is that just laziness by either journalists or or the established framework we have of political and civic leadership? Or do you think this is a means of control? Do you think people that are able to use those ideas and and the, the language perpetuate that to exclude you and to ensure that the same people keep coming through into into positions of influence or is it just laziness <laughs> i feel like it's sometimes just a lack of intentionality i think that if you do something in a way that you would best understand you can forget that but i feel like if that's your goal if that's what you want to reach i feel like there are many avenues to do that but it's just something that you have to think about and something that you have to practice and take feedback for I also agree with Sanaya where some news articles can be or feel more overcomplicated. So a good way that I feel like we combat that, especially at PD and the Global Studies Program, is that we get to discuss some current events in our classes, which really help me further my understanding of different things going on in the world. So then I feel like I can relate to it more and can have more of an impact on different things going on in the world. So I find that that's really useful when we can take a deep dive into it. So if it is really confusing, we can work out and figure out what the article is really getting at. I think there is a big gap in news that's catered towards middle schoolers, especially because I think a lot of media companies have recognized the importance of educating like elementary schoolers. You know, you have all of these like magazines and newspapers for kids and then you have by the time you get to high school, you're able to parse for the most part what the regular news is talking about. But I think middle school is that gap where, you know, you're not fully able to understand every part that, you know, a full length news article is talking about, but also you are way too mature and you are able to process more than what these like magazines and newspapers for kids are talking about. And I think podcasts like this have definitely been instrumental in filling that gap. I think audio itself is a very accessible media because everyone takes so much care to explain things in a more thorough sense, but also in a way that's easier to understand because our normal conversation, the way we speak normally is different than the way we write. And I think it helps with accessibility, which is important, you know, not just for middle schoolers, but for people around the world. And I love to listen to podcasts on my drive to school. So I think it's more of a compliment to you and to other podcasters that are working to spread the news. I think podcast as a medium is great, and I just would love to keep seeing more of it. Absolutely. I agree with Anish. And I'd also like to, bouncing back to Sanaya's point, just say that I think it's not necessarily a means of control to leave certain people out of the news, but it's more sometimes a disconnection to your audiences. And, you know, when you're having really lofty academic discussions, 
with generally the same type of person, it can be difficult to remember who's actually listening to that. Who are you reaching? Because you're reaching a lot of people. And so I think that's why it's so great that like you are here talking to us, a group of high schoolers right now, and being connected with the people who are consuming your media so that you better understand like what the level is that you need to communicate with us at. Because it's really important that everyone be informed, but obviously different people due to different resources are ready to be informed at different levels. That, that comes back to what we were saying earlier on, because at a time when the explosion of citizen journalism, when ev- everybody can be podcasters, we can all have websites, we can all have social media, and yet, as you say, sometimes it's still not breaking through. So is it is it the overload? And that's why I was asking earlier on about, do you have the framework to receive information correctly or just feel absolutely swamped? But it's interesting that, that, you, that you describe that there's fewer areas that are talking directly to you at a time when everyone's talking. Yeah, so I think that goes back, or at least the, I guess the inability of citizen journalism to break through probably, in my mind, is a testament to our ability to think critically. We've been trained from such a young age. Look at what sources, like where your sources are, use only those reputable websites. And so I think, is it a bad thing necessarily that citizen journalism isn't breaking through? No, because it's also encouraging people to think critically and that helps with, like I mentioned earlier, just general development. And even if, you know, you're not getting your news directly from a citizen journalist or someone who is speaking directly to you, I think it also helps you know that the information that you're getting is more reputable and and has been fact-checked and has been ideally scrubbed of any bias that it might have. So I don't think it's the deluge of information. I think it's more that we're just, as a generation, as a human population as a whole, just thinking more critically and ensuring that we're getting right, factual, proper information. I think to Anisha's point about citizen journalism versus the more traditional journalism, um, you know, if I want to see the latest on the war in Ukraine, would I rather go to Twitter, which is going to have a lot of information but may not be the most reputable, or would I rather go to the website of The Telegraph or The New York Times, where the information may be at a higher level that's more complicated to understand, but we know that it's going to be reputable and we know that it's going to have the latest details and the most accurate information on there. So I think finding that balance is really important uh, for us as students and also more broadly for anyone consuming the news. Great. Thank you. I mean, life, life is all a balance, isn't it? Sorry, you're about to burst. Oh, I just, I wanted to add one more thing about citizen journalism. I think the most important part of citizen journalism, and I have to say this because I'm on the newspaper here at PD, but opinion, in my mind, is one of the most important pieces of citizen journalism because you get, you can get your factual news from reputable sources, but I think people around the world want to know what everyday people like us, like the person across the street, like the person living in Morocco or Ukraine, what they're thinking, because they have a completely unique perspective that a government official or a military officer does not have. And I think citizen journalism in the form of opinion pieces or like guest like op-eds is critical for understanding how people feel about a particular issue. And I'm, once again, really thankful that you guys are doing this with us so that we have the opportunity to give our opinion about a variety of topics. Ashia, you've been looking at a 
particular piece of work, haven't you, that sounds really interesting? I have. Thanks for bringing it up. So over the last two summers, actually, I've been working with a nonprofit foundation here in Charlotte called the Echo Foundation. They seek to find acts of human courage through injustice all over the world. So over the last two summers, we've looked specifically at Ukraine. Uh, I, we wrote the curriculum for the North Carolina public school system about what was going on in Ukraine. There's two volumes, One, that, the first one that which I worked on, which covered from the start of the war, February 24th, to last summer. We talked about a variety of aspects of the war, like the economics of it, the histories of both Ukraine and Russia, the immigration and emigration crisis that this has caused. And we've also looked at international actors. But most recently, and frankly, more human, this summer we went abroad to a lot of the places we studied and interviewed a lot of the people we talked about in the curriculum. So this summer, I was in actually Brussels and The Hague speaking with members of NATO, the UN, the EU, and the ICC about the legality of the war, what's going on, what international organizations are able to do. And one of the more interesting people we spoke with, it was a photojournalist by the name of Ron Haviv. He was on the ground in Ukraine. He showed us so many things of what was going on that you never see elsewhere. So we saw Actually, it was quite disheartening. was a picture of an older woman burying her son, who they found dead uh, after fighting. They found a note, actually, that was in a soldier's vest from his daughter and his wife. You know, I think there's a lot of us who have taken steps like these to make change in our community, uh, inspire action and knowledge and curiosity. So that's just what I have contributed within the last two years since it started. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, everybody, really appreciate the chat. Cassie, I hope you're feeling more positive for the future after this. There's some very uh, energised people around the room here who I'm sure are going to go on to uh, to great things at wherever your past take you. Does everybody know what they want to do with their lives or um, worked it out yet? I haven't quite worked it out yet, so there's plenty of time. Thank you so much for your, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Providence Day. And uh, am I allowed to say go Chargers? Is that, is that correct? <laughs> Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.